You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And I would like to begin this morning by reading the text. Chapter-wise, we are about halfway through Philippians. Volume-wise, we're sitting at about 60% complete, so we're making progress. And I hope that this little letter has found its way into your heart like it has mine. But friends, that's not to say that the best is behind us. No, we have gold ahead of us in the days to come. Chapter 3 is considered by many to be their favorite section of Philippians. It contains pithy statements of tightly packed theology, as well as mountaintop mantras for practical Christian living. Pastors will preach entire sermon series on Philippians 3 alone because it is so rich, and honestly, it shouldn't be rushed. So today, we'll read the first three verses, but I want us to zero in specifically on just one verse. That is chapter 3, verse 1. I want us to see what Paul has to tell us about joy. So please follow along with me as I read from Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. If we approached any demographic this morning, anywhere in our country or virtually the world, If we approached anyone with a simple poll consisting of one question, what do you want most in life? What do you think the number one answer would be? Probably happiness. Happiness. People just want to be happy. Our word for happy comes from the Latin word fortuna, where we get our word fortune. When fortunes are good, happiness rises. When fortunes are bad, happiness falls. In other words, happiness is determined by our happenstance or our circumstances in life. The clouds part, the sun shines, and our happiness level goes up. How many of you felt that this morning as we roll out of bed and we saw the the sun streaming through the clouds? But at the same time, the clouds then roll back in and the sun disappears. And then what happens to our happiness? It plummets. The stock market goes up and we're happy. The stock market goes down, and we're not happy. Our team wins. We're happy. Our team loses. We're not happy. Everyone at one time or another experiences happiness, but joy, real joy, as we're about to look at here in Scripture, joy is something different altogether. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Happiness is circumstantial, but joy is not. Joy is an inner quality of delight in God, and 
it is meant to spring up within a Christian in a way totally unrelated to the adversities or circumstantial blessings of this life. That's good. John MacArthur agrees with that assessment. He, he adds, the joy of which Paul writes is not the same as happiness, the word related to the term happenstance, the feeling of exhilaration associated with favorable events. In fact, joy persists in the face of weakness, pain, suffering, and even death. Likewise, Dennis Johnson writes, Paul makes it clear that the joy that he and the Philippians share is grounded not in their circumstances, but in the Lord. So, joy is far better than happiness. Joy is far more substantial. It's more solid. It's more stable. So, what is it exactly? What is joy? If it is not determined by our good days or our bad days, then where do we find it? How do we get it? And then once we do find it, how do we keep it? Well, I really like James Montgomery Boyce to quote him again. He provides a very succinct definition. He says, Joy is a supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. That's good. That's a good definition for joy. It is a supernatural delight in God and in God's goodness. It's supernatural, meaning that it's not normal. It's not something that we can muster. It's not something that we could just experience on our own, apart from Christ. And yet, it's this internal delight that can only be found in God and in His goodness. You see, life has a way of affecting our happiness. Earlier this week, my son Benji, as many of you know, underwent a surgery to help open up his airway passages when he sleeps. He needed the surgery, so I was happy to see him receive it. And especially with all the lockdowns taking place, I wasn't sure if we were going to get to it this year or not. So I was elated. I was thrilled to see him go under the knife, as strange as that sounds. However, when he woke up, he was confused and he was in tremendous pain. As you can imagine, as a parent, my happiness went from sky high to rock bottom. And so they gave him what he needed to help deal with the pain. And, and then he was fine. And then all of a sudden, within a matter of hours, my happiness skyrocketed again when the doctors told me, we're going to send you home early. Now, some of you have spent the night in the hospital, and as much as I and myself and Julia, as much as we love sleeping on a hard surface surrounded by strangers and beeping machines, we were excited. We were happy to go home. However, once we got home, we realized that we now had to give our son his medicine every three hours around the clock, without nurses, without IVs, and we had to do it orally, right after he's had throat surgery. As you can imagine, uh, our happiness factor was not so high after the first night or two of not sleeping and, and trying to help our son take his medicine. But that's to be expected, right? We go through these times in our lives where we're up and we're down. We're up and we're down. We're up and we're down. We're happy one moment and we're sad the next. And that's to be expected. That's the average experience for all of us. And we all experience that, that back and forth of life, the ups and downs of happenstance and fortune. But friends, again, that's happiness, the world experiences that. We all experience that. 
But joy is something different altogether. Joy, that supernatural delight in God and His goodness, that joy is all about Him. It's not about our circumstances. It's not about these things that change. It is about the immutable, never-changing God who loves us and cares for us. And it's because of Him that we can sing that stanza from how firm a foundation that says, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. God does that. God does that for us. Joy is something far better than happiness. It is a divine gift that rises above our happenstance and it fills our heart with peace. Steve Lawson writes, Joy is the supernatural excitement we experience in God himself. It involves gladness of heart in the things of God. It results from taking greatest pleasure in Christ and his kingdom above all other things. It is an exalting and an exhilaration in the soul arising from a heart that is filled to overflowing with love for God and his son, Jesus Christ, end quote. But friends, the question remains, where do we find joy? Where do we find joy? What must we do to get it, and then how do we keep it? If we know that it is found in Christ, we know that it is found in God, and we know that we are loved by Him, so why do we live in such despair? Why is it so hard? Why is our soul rocking within us, and we find ourselves tossed back and forth between circumstance and circumstance, and, and yet we know that this is available to us? How, how do we how do we get it and how do we keep it? In Philippians 3.1, Paul provides five important truths about joy. He gives five essential facts that will help us remain grounded in joy when the circumstances of life beat us down. Here they are. First of all, it's important to note the commitment of joy. The commitment of joy. Notice the first word of the verse. He says, finally, finally. Now, the word finally could honestly be translated better, and it should, because it sounds like Paul is being a cliche pastor here, doesn't it? I mean, after all, we're only about 60% into the book. There's still 40% left. What do you mean finally? Is this a pastor saying, in conclusion, and then you check your watch and 40 minutes have passed, and he is not anywhere near concluding? That, that's what it feels like whenever we come to this word, isn't it? It's like, Paul, what do you mean, finally? I mean, you're, you're not even, I mean, you're just a little over halfway done. What are you doing here? When someone says finally, it typically means that they're wrapping it up, but Paul has 43 more verses to go. He's far from done. So he's not saying in conclusion. No, the word here is better translated moreover or furthermore. It means so then, or now then, or well then. And Paul is simply transitioning into a new section. He's saying, in light of everything I've said thus far, here, here's more for you to consider. I'm not done yet. I still have more to go. That's what he's saying here with this word. He's saying so then, now then, well then. And he's getting ready to move forward. 
He's about to build new cases and broader arguments based on what he has already written. So this word finally, it should cause us to pause and reflect on the thrust of the letter that has brought us here to this turning point. And we have titled this series Indestructible Joy because the theme of joy is highlighted all throughout this letter. Each New Testament epistle has its own flavor and its own purpose for being in the Bible. Philippians is known to many as the epistle of joy because the Greek word for joy appears at least 16 times throughout this text. By the time we get to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul has already mentioned joy 11 times. So it would do us good to go back and review this theme, to follow the trail that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. It begins in chapter 1 with verses 3 and 4, so let's start there. Look at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Joy. Our prayer life should be filled with joy. It should be an exciting privilege for us to come before the throne of grace, to be able to lift each other up before the Lord, knowing that we have an active high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses and intercedes for us on our behalf. And just the thought that we can access holy God through the gospel and thank him for the partnership that we have with other believers in the gospel, that alone should be enough. It should be more than enough to flood our hearts with an overwhelming sense of joy. And then in verse 18, the word rejoice is mentioned twice. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. You will remember that here in chapter 1, there are other preachers in town that are preaching Christ with all the wrong motives. They're preaching a good message. They're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're not doing it for the sake of the kingdom. They're not doing it to bring more glory to the Lord. Instead, they're doing it to bring more glory to themselves. They're trying to puff up. They're trying to build up their ministries, their clout amongst other believers. And they're trying to push Paul down in the process. They're slandering him. They're, they're driving his name through the mud and trying to elevate themselves. And Paul carries this attitude. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether it's in pretense, whether it's hypocritical, whether it's false or fake, or whether it's in truth, whether it's the real thing, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Listen, every time Christ is preached, your heart should leap in response with joy. Whether you like the preacher or not, whether the motives behind the message are good or bad, honestly, it doesn't matter. So long as the message is a truthful proclamation of Christ, we should be blessed, not bitter. We should, we should experience that sense of joy as our heart, as the Spirit within our hearts responds to the Spirit's message and produces a Spirit-enabled work within us. Who cares about the vehicle God uses? 
We should be thrilled to hear the truth of the gospel go forth wherever the word of God is preached. Look at verse 25. He says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Your progress and joy in the faith. When he says the faith, he's talking about the body of Christian truth. And our joy should always be connected with the truth. If God be true and every man a liar, then true supernatural joy can only be found in one place. And that is God's word. I want you to notice also here in verse 25 that progress in the faith and joy in the faith, the two things are tied together. Progress in the faith and joy in the faith. As you grow in the Lord, your joy will grow as well. What else would you expect to happen? If joy is a supernatural delight in God and His goodness, doesn't it stand to reason that a greater knowledge of God and a deeper relationship with God would create more joy in your life? That makes sense. That's why we saw in chapter 2 that complainers make the worst witnesses. Remember chapter 2, verse 14? He gives us that strong command. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputes. Don't complain. Because those who are really mature in their walk with the Lord and aren't just lying to themselves, they are the ones who delight in God rather than drown in their circumstances. If you are truly growing... And progressing in the faith, your joy in the faith will progress with you. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, spiritual unity increases joy. Have you ever noticed how depressed people have a way of depressing others? I've noticed that. I'm sure many of you have too. Depressed people depress others. And in the same way, divisive people have a way of damaging the church. But when we come together in a spirit of unity, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, when we do that, it takes the joy that we already have and it completes it. It fills it up. It adds more to it when we come together and we be the church, like Scripture tells us to be the church. It increases our joy. It completes it. Let me challenge you, the next time you come to church and you hear someone complaining about anything, it's too hot, it's too cold, or when are they going to fix that, or I shouldn't have to do this or that, the next time that that happens. Next time you hear someone complain, notice the expression on the person's face. In that moment, is the joy of the Lord pouring out of them in a mature sense of unity, or are they just miserable? And ask yourself, do I really want to be like that? Do I really want to be like them? There was once a man who was about to jump off of a bridge An alert police officer slowly and methodically moved towards him, talking the entire time. When the officer got within inches of the man, he said, surely nothing could be so bad that you would risk taking your own life 
Surely it can't be all that bad. Come on, let's talk. Tell me about it. The would-be jumper told him how his wife had left him, how his business had gone bankrupt, how his friends had deserted him. Everything was lost. Everything was without meaning for this poor man. For 30 minutes he told the sad story, and in the end, they both jumped. Sadly, that's exactly what happens when we air our grievances and we divide the body because we want what we want and our preferences matter more to us than the spiritual unity of the church. We bring others down and we become a drainer of joy rather than a completer of joy. Now look at verse 17. Verse 17 there of chapter 2, Paul says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What an encouraging word. What a good word. And we can rejoice and be filled with joy even when we are poured out. Even when there's nothing left of us, when we feel empty, like there's nothing left to give because we've given it all, we can still have joy and share our joy with others. As we serve others and consider the needs of others more important than our own, we don't walk away with less, we walk away with more. Our hearts burst with joy, and that joy spills over into the lives of those we serve. Ten times out of ten, it is the self-serving Christian who lacks joy. Ten times out of ten, it's the one who comes to church hoping to get rather than give. Those are the people who walk away unsatisfied. But those who serve others end up walking away with more than they came with, more than they bargained for even. Because in God's economy, up is down and less is more. He who humbles himself will be exalted and he who exalts himself will be humbled. Up and down, down and up. Likewise, he who takes winds up with less, and he who gives winds up with more. When we sincerely come to the point where we want to serve others, and we want to see them grow in their faith, then a contagious joy begins to grow between us. Without it, the church becomes a chore, duty becomes drudgery, and ministry becomes misery. Look at the next verse, chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. You you see, joy is a door that swings both ways. It's like a yo-yo. You throw it out there and it comes right back. As your heart is filled with joy, it, it spills over onto others and then their heart is filled with joy, and it spills right back onto you. Again, we're not talking about circumstantial happiness, but supernatural joy that swells in the heart and delights in God and His goodness. And finally, speaking of Epaphroditus, look at verse 29. Paul says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Friends, there is a joy that comes with honoring those to whom honor is due. 
And before you say, wow, Hans, that's a little self-serving considering you're the pastor of this church, let me remind you that for all we know, Epaphroditus in this text, who he is writing about, for all we know, he wasn't a pastor. He was simply a faithful member of the congregation of First Baptist Church in Philippi. That's all that we know about him, that he was a faithful congregant. He wasn't a pastor. Now, elsewhere, Paul will say to honor the leadership of the church because, because God has appointed them to their position, but that's not his point here. He says that we are to honor those who serve sacrificially for the work of Christ. And you don't have to be a paid staff member of the church to do that. So when we become such men and we honor such men because that's what God wants, guess what happens to us? Our joy, it doesn't go down. It goes up. Because by contrast, when we continually undermine other men and women of God, we lose our joy. Sure, we might receive the temporary rush of self-satisfaction as we tear others down to make ourselves look more impressive or to make ourselves feel more important. But in the end, God continues to bless them and you're the one left with nothing. So honor those. Honor those around you who are serving the Lord. And that brings us to chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul writes, Finally, finally, or so then, in light of all that, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. By way of review, we have seen that our prayer life should be filled with joy. When Christ is preached, we should be filled with joy. As we grow in the truth, our joy should also grow. That spiritual unity increases joy, and that the more we serve, the more joy we have. That joy is contagious, and then finally, as we honor those who serve, we should do so with joy. All throughout this letter, Paul has remained committed to joy, and he encourages the Philippians to do likewise. And let's not forget that Paul's circumstances, his personal circumstances as he's writing this letter, they're not good. They're not good at all. I mean, he's the one who is under house arrest. He's the one being slandered. He's the one facing death. And yet he is the one encouraging them, telling them, you need to rejoice. You think it should be the other way around. Shouldn't it be the ones who are outside of jail? The ones who are free to preach the gospel with all the privileges that come with being a Roman citizen in Philippi? Shouldn't they be the ones reminding Paul to be joyful? He's the one in jail. Instead, we see the one with chains telling the ones without chains to continually rejoice. No matter what. That's a far more powerful word coming from Paul than if it came from those whose circumstances are more comfortable. If God can give this man, who has been beaten within an inch of his life, hated by his own people, and arrested for preaching the gospel, if God can give him joy, then perhaps, perhaps there's hope for us. Perhaps whatever it is that you might be going through this morning, there's hope for you that you can have joy as well. That's the first element of joy here in our text, the commitment of joy. 
Number two, notice the community of joy, the community. He says, finally, my brothers, my brothers, which is another way of saying my spiritual relatives, my fellow Christians, those who have been born again into the kingdom of God and the family of God. Listen, only a true believer can have joy. Only true believers can experience this joy. And that is why he throws these two little words in here, my brothers, between finally and rejoice. Unbelievers may find happiness, but they will never experience joy, not the same way that born-again believers do. If joy is a supernatural delight in God and His goodness, then it stands to reason that those who do not know God cannot know joy. They can't. It's impossible. But here's the good news. Everyone who does know the Lord, every single one of us, we all have everything that we need to experience this joy, to live with this joy. And that's everyone. Paul doesn't say, finally, my elders. He doesn't say, finally, my deacons, or finally, my Awana commanders, or finally, my small group leaders. He says, finally, my brothers. This is everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And this isn't a special privilege for missionaries, martyrs, and mega-Christians. This extraordinary measure of peace and pleasure is freely offered to every single child of God, every last one of us. If you're in the family of God, this joy is available to you. Next week, we'll look at verse 2, where Paul paints a graphic picture of false converts, the people who say that they're saved and might even think that they're saved, but in reality are lost and without Christ and are doing damage to the body of Christ. And Paul has some very strong things to say about them. But in verse 3, for the sake of contrast, he describes what a true Christian looked like. This is what the brothers and sisters in Christ look like. Look at what he says there. He writes, For we are the circumcision. In other words, we are the true believers. Unlike those false believers, those false converts of verse 2, we are the circumcision, the true believers. And here are three things that we do. We worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. He says true believers serve God, promote Christ, and rely on Him for everything. I have to ask, does that describe the pattern of your life? Is that you? Are you a verse 3 sort of Christian? Hopefully you are, and not a verse 2 sort of Christian. Do you serve God? Do you listen to, love, and live God's Word? Does your faith have feet? Is it going somewhere? Are you living the Christian life? Do you promote Christ? Are you looking for opportunities to share your faith? Or do you wish you were somewhere else when those opportunities do come? Are you proud of your Savior or too embarrassed to claim Him? And do you rely on Him for everything? Or do you still live like grace has its limits or conditions? Look, verse 2 gives us a picture of a religious person. Verse 3 gives us a picture of a righteous person. And if verse 3 doesn't describe you, then it's no wonder 
No wonder that you can't find joy. Gertrude was about to make her first parachute jump. The instructor said, first you pull the big cord. If that doesn't work, you pull the little cord. There will be a red pickup truck waiting for you when you land. Gertrude nodded. Sounds good enough. She jumped out of the plane. When she pulled the big cord, nothing happened. So she pulled the little cord. Still, nothing happened. That's great, she muttered to herself. Now I suppose the red pickup truck won't be there either. (laughs) I know, it's a groan-worthy joke. It's awful. But I can't think of a better illustration for how unbelievers live their lives. I mean, think about it. They complain about their circumstances while falling to their deaths. And sadly, even believers who know better and know the Savior will often act like all they have in life are their circumstances. We forget the joy that we experienced when we first believed, when we first knew that we were saved. We either take our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ and turn our attention towards worldly things and pursuits and and temporary troubles, or we discover that our faith was never really ours. It was never really there. It was never really genuine to begin with. And that's an even far more terrifying reality. But it's one that we must all come to grips with. We need to wrestle with and make sure that we are, in fact, in the faith. Because, friends, that's everything. That is everything. Unfortunately, churches are full of people who are not truly saved. And those folks normally fall into one of two categories. The first group is aware of the fact that they're lost, but they think that they can somehow produce the fruit of Christianity without Christ. They think they can grow a tree without the root. Often, these are the folks who left the church as soon as they were no longer under their parents' thumb, only to then come back after having kids of their own. They see church as a positive influence, but their commitment to the Lord is no deeper than what the church can provide for their kids. That's just one example. But these folks, these people who think that they can have the fruit of Christ, the benefits of Christ without Christ himself, these people need to realize that the fruit of the Spirit is supernatural. It's not something that you can muster up or make on your own. You can't have joy without surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus. You can't. You can change your behavior, but only God can change the heart. The second group of unbelievers in the church are those who think that they're saved, but they aren't. Not really. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and you just assumed that you're a Christian. It was really cute. This last week, my five-year-old girl, she looked at me, and I can't remember what we were talking about, but she gave a very Christian answer, and she smiled ear to ear, and she said, that's because I'm a Christian. And I just thought, oh, man, I want that to be true so bad. I really do. And so, again, I just took the opportunity to share the gospel with my kid, to talk her through it, and just pray and hope, Lord, you will will make it clear over time whether this sweet little five-year-old girl, if she is saved or not. But for now, we're just going to keep hitting her with the gospel because we don't know. And odds are, she probably just assumes that she is a Christian because she's growing up in a Christian home. Because mom and dad are Christians. 
Mom and dad, they talk about the Bible all the time. They talk about Christian things. We live the Christian life in front of her. That's how we conduct our household. And so why wouldn't she just assume that she is a Christian by default? Many people, they never get beyond that. And they just assume they're saved because their parents were. Or maybe you had an exciting weekend at church camp. You had some existential experience, something that that sealed the deal in your mind and said, oh, that's it, I'm saved. I had it. I had that moment. Or you were baptized as a kid long before you knew what that meant. Regardless, those who fall into this category, they typically mean well, but they don't understand the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel That we are not saved by our works or anything that we have done or even other things here in life that have been done to us. We are transformed from the inside out through a new birth, through a work of the Spirit in our lives that generates and creates the gift of faith that then saves us. They don't understand that. They don't understand because they don't get the heart of the gospel. They, they don't understand why others get to experience the fruit of being in Christ while all of their attempts come up empty. Over the next several weeks, we're going to focus on the heart of the gospel because that's what Paul will do in the, in the remaining verses here in the beginning of chapter 3. Paul will make it crystal clear here in Philippians 3 that salvation is a gift from God. And that it comes through faith in Christ, period. It doesn't matter where you came from, who you are, or what you know. Your salvation and all the benefits that come with it are found only in Christ and His righteousness, not yours. Paul is going to make that crystal clear. One more verse worth considering before we move on is Romans 14, 17. Romans 14, 17. Go ahead and turn with me there, if you will, to Romans 14, because this is a, an incredible verse. It's the sort of verse you don't want to just gloss over quickly. You want to see it on the page. Romans 14. It's one of the great chapters of the New Testament that speak to the Christian's liberty and license. But look at what he writes here in verse 17. He says, For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, joy is an essential element for those who are in the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy are things that distinguish us from other kingdoms from other governmental systems that we find here on earth. As Christians, this is our culture. This is our community. Because we are a community of joy. That's number two. Number three. Back to Philippians 3 in verse 1. Number three. We see the command of joy. The command of joy. Of joy. And the command is simple. He simply says, rejoice. Rejoice. This isn't a suggestion, it's a command. And some of you have been to seminary. I remember whenever I first came here, I was surprised to see how many men of our church have been to various seminaries across the country and have received seminary training and, and, and that education. Some of you have been there, 
and you've been trained in the biblical languages. So you know, and those of you who have taken classes in biblical Greek will back me up when I say that 80% of your time or more is spent focusing on what? Verbs. Verbs. I remember my heart would sink just a little bit each day before I go to class because I knew there was going to be another parsing quiz or parsing test every single day. Because ancient Greek is a very precise language. And you can get a lot out of the text by simply parsing the verbs. For instance, this verb that we have here in our text to rejoice, it's in the present tense, meaning that this is not a one-and-done sort of action. No, we are to continually be rejoicing. Presently, at the moment, right now, you need to be rejoicing. This isn't a get around to it. This isn't something to do in the future. This isn't something that you've done in the past and you're okay to take a break with now. No, he's saying presently, at the moment, here, now, continually, keep on rejoicing. That's what he's saying. Do this all the time. He's not saying get around to it when you feel like it. Do it once, check the box, and move on. He says start doing it now and keep on doing it. Rejoice. It's in the present tense. This verb is also in the active voice. Active voice meaning that this isn't something that you just sit around and you hope happens to you. You're not a passive participant in this rejoicing. You're active. You are obligated to get up and actively do it. You have to choose to do this. You have to choose to rejoice because no one else can make that decision for you. No one else can decide to rejoice in the Lord on your behalf. You are the only one who can actively adopt a continual lifestyle of rejoicing. No one else can do it for you. Thirdly, this action is second person plural. Second person plural, meaning that this applies to all of us. If Paul were alive today, and if he were writing this letter from the south, he would say, y'all need to rejoice. You all need to rejoice. It's second person plural. Second person plural. This is for all of us, every believer. And then finally, this word rejoice, it's in the imperative mood. This isn't an indicative statement. It's an imperative. It's a command. So tying it all together, Paul is literally saying with this one word, all of you always actively, ardently rejoice. With just one little word, Paul makes it clear that this is not simply a strong suggestion or helpful advice. This isn't a take it or leave it sort of command. This is a clear, instructive command. It is a charge that comes all the way down the line from our king. Within the New Testament alone, this verb rejoice appears 72 times. The noun joy appears 60 times. When we expand our search to include related words of the same word family, the number increases to 146 times. And that's just in the New Testament alone. If we included the Old Testament in our search, that number rises to 326 times. That's how important this command to rejoice really is. Now, that's not to say that Christians are the only people in the world who are not allowed to be sad. I told you, we go through the same ups and downs, highs and lows as everybody else in this life. 
We experience happiness. We experience sadness. We are just like anyone else. We're not told within the Bible to feign happiness or to keep on faking it until we arrive at glory. That's not what we're told to do. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be happy. But again, we're not talking about that, are we? We're talking about something more substantial, something more solid, something that is grounded in something more put together than our circumstance, something that will not shift, will not move, and not something, a person, a someone. So even though we're not told to feign happiness or to be silly Christians who fake it until we make it, we are told in Scripture that no matter what happens, whatever life throws at us, we can choose to actively rejoice in the Lord. We can make that choice because God has not limited our joy to our circumstances and our experiences here in this life. The Philippians, they saw this in Paul firsthand. When the church was first planted about 10 years before this letter was written, you'll remember Paul's group, they came to town and the church was started there by the river and then it transitioned over into Lydia's home. Soon after that, Paul and Silas cast a demon out of a fortune-telling girl. One thing leads to another, and before you know it, both men are stripped naked and beaten within an inch of their lives right there in the public square. And instead of justice, the local government ordered for them to be beaten with rods after all that and then thrown into the darkest, worst part of the prison that they were placed in stocks and stretched out as far as they could go. So there was nothing comfortable about their stay there in Philippi. They were hungry, humiliated, naked, and bleeding. By all accounts, they had a terrible day. They had the worst of days. For most of us, it would be in our top five, if not number one, of worst days of our lives. It was a bad, bad day. But what do we see Paul and Silas doing in that situation around midnight? They're both praying and singing hymns to the Lord. And they're doing it loudly. And the prisoners around them are listening to what they're saying. You see, that's joy. That's joy. Happiness has nothing to do with that. There is nothing in that circumstance, in, the, in that situation, to evoke happiness What they experienced and what they had at that moment was supernatural joy. When you've had the worst day ever, and it's not over yet, but nothing is going to hinder your delight in God and His goodness. That's joy. This is more than a feeling. It's an action. And again, this isn't a suggestion. It's a command. We're told to do this. It is the command of joy. That's number three. Number four, I want you to note the confines of joy. The confines of joy. What are the boundaries or the parameters of joy? What is the sphere of joy? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. As we have seen, joy is a major theme for this letter. But in this particular instance, in chapter 3, verse 1, he specifically adds this new prepositional phrase, 
He's not tacked this on before. This is new. This is the first time in the letter he's done this. He adds that phrase, in the Lord. In the Lord. Because apart from the Lord, there can be no joy. So who is the Lord? Just listen to how Paul uses this word, Lord, throughout the letter. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Chapter 2, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count all things as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again at the very end, chapter 4, verse 23, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It should be obvious to all of us this morning who Paul has in mind as he writes this letter, who he's thinking about as he refers to the Lord. He's not referring to the Father, and he's not referring to the Spirit. There are times in Scripture when the word Lord can be attributed to both of them, but here he's specifically referring to Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice for unworthy sinners. You've heard me say it over and over again. There is no message greater than the good news of the cross. That the perfect, righteous Son of God Himself entered the sin-soaked world through a birth canal. That He became a man. That He lived His life as a man. Fully man. Truly man. And yet fully and truly God. At the same time, he lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father. He didn't, he didn't mess up once. He didn't sin once. Think about that. A perfect man. And yet, how did he die? He died the worst, most gruesome criminal's death imaginable. And why? Why did he do that? In order to pay for our sins. In order to absorb all of the wrath that God has against sinners into himself in order to take that punishment and stand in our place so that he would be punished instead of us so that now much like pastor Stephen showed us in second Corinthians 5 a couple of weeks ago now God he no longer looks at you and sees your sin because all of that sin that you carry all of your past present and future sins all of that has been placed on Christ so now now he sees Christ. He sees his perfect righteousness, his perfect record. He sees that when he looks at you. What an incredible, incredible exchange, an incredible blessing that God would put all of our sin on his perfect son and that he would pay the price once for all, that it would be finished there at the cross in order for us to enjoy his perfection, his spotlessness, 
And yes, we struggle with the flesh. And yes, we work through things here and now. And the Spirit is continually working within us to conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Yes, that is true. But one day we will see Him and we will be like Him and we will be finished. We will be glorified with Him forever. That is the message of the cross. But it is only true for those who have abandoned everything who have denied themselves, picked up their own cross and followed this Christ, who placed their faith, their trust, their hope, everything that they have in this Savior. It takes everything to receive everything. Listen, you can experience happiness without the cross of Christ, but you will never experience the joy that comes from being forgiven of every sin until you embrace this cross, until you deny yourself, pick up your own cross and follow him. Joy can only be found in one place. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if any of you here, if you are not saved, if you are an unbeliever, and if you know it, you might, be the, you might fall into category number one. You may just be here for whatever benefit you might think church could provide or because someone invited you or whatever. If this message is resonating with you at all, then I would encourage you, there is no guarantee that you're going to live through the rest of this message. Confess now. Confess your sin before the Lord. Repent of it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then immediately when this message is done, after the baptism later today, run to myself or whoever you have next to you that knows the gospel and find out more. Pour cement into your faith. Make sure that there is no question, none whatsoever, that you have in fact believed and been saved. Because joy can only be found in one place, friends. It's only found in one place, and that is the Lord Jesus it's in knowing the Lord, loving the Lord, serving the Lord, and worshiping the Lord. Salvation and joy are exclusively linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in the Lord. That's number four. We've seen the commitment of joy, the community of joy, the command of joy, and the confines of joy. Finally, Paul gives us the covering of joy the covering of joy. Finishing out the verse, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. It is safe for you. When it comes to God's word, we should love the same old truths. It should be no trouble for us to hear them and to share them and then to hear them again because God's word never grows old. It never grows old. The gospel never grows stale. And repetition of truth, it's a safeguard. It is a covering for us. What Paul is about to write in the following verses, it's critical. It's important truth that we need to hear again and again that salvation is entirely of the Lord. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And such gospel truth, it deserves to be introduced with much joy. So it's no wonder that verse 1 is here. It, it may seem like a, a small verse, an easy one to pass over, like a hinge as he does transition from the first two chapters into the rest of the letter. But it's more than that. 
It's more than that. It is the natural expression of a heart as it responds to gospel truth. We should be filled with joy as we explore and unpack these truths that we are about to look at in the weeks ahead. The thing about gospel truth, it points us away from ourselves and it points us back to Christ. I don't know about you, but I disappoint me all the time. I do. Sometimes I feel like a mistake magnet or I start to think, I got this. This is easy. Things are finally starting to come together. Not realizing that the second I think that, it's actually a prayer that God interprets in saying, Lord, humble me. And he does. But you know, despite every failure, Jesus will never disappoint us. We may disappoint ourselves. Others may disappoint us. We will disappoint others. But Christ is the only one who will never disappoint you. Ever. He'll never disappoint us. He is the only perfect relationship that we will ever have this side of heaven. And he's more than enough. It makes sense for Paul to transition directly into verse 2 with three warnings to look out for false teachers, those who would turn our eyes away from Christ and off of our Savior, the source of our joy, and then back onto things that, that promise life and deliver death. We need this covering of repetition that brings us back to the source of all joy. Charles Spurgeon wrote, to have the same gospel, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit made known to you is safe. And then he adds, new doctrine is dangerous doctrine. Friend, if you are in Christ, your sins have been paid for at the cross almost 2,000 years ago. You don't need a fresh word or the latest theological heresy. You need an old gospel. And Paul is going to take us there in the weeks ahead. Well, here in just a few minutes, Pastor Stephen is going to baptize a wonderful woman with an incredible testimony. So in a way, today's message is timely because baptism reminds us of the spiritual work of salvation and it fills our hearts with even more joy. I look forward to baptisms, and I'm sure you do too, because they fill us with joy and as they remind us of our own testimonies, our own transition, our own birthing from above. But tomorrow is Monday. So let me encourage you this week. Don't forget what we've looked at. Don't forget this verse. Hold fast to the commitment of joy. Make this supernatural delight in God and His goodness your desire every day. Determine to rejoice. Also live like one who belongs to the community of joy. The world doesn't have what you've got, Christian. So don't try to blend in or settle for lower living by grumbling and complaining about the weather or politics or traffic or whatever. Don't give in to that. Instead, be thankful. Be grateful. Be joyful. Pursue righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because that's how people who belong to God's kingdom act. And don't forget the command of joy. This isn't a suggestion, it's an order. If we are to obey Christ in all things, we must rejoice in the Lord. We need to make that decision. We need to choose to do this. Because in Him alone are the confines of joy. Apart from Him, you won't find it. 
just the roller coaster of emotions that we all know so well. And then finally, the covering of joy. So long as you keep your eye on the prize, the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all joy and life, you will stay the course, protected by the truth. And one day, you will stand before your Savior and your joy will be made complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we are overwhelmed by the truth and the profundity of your word. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, I, I don't know anyone who would say that their joy is complete, that they are filled to the brim with joy and, and they don't need this word. They don't need more of it. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we would obey this command, that we would rejoice in the Lord, that we would act as those who belong to the community of faith, that we would remain committed That this is not just a repeated theme for the sake of repetition, but that it is a safeguard for us. This is something that we should hold on to. It should change us. God, I pray that we would be people who reflect your glory, your goodness. That we would be people of gratitude and thankfulness. That we would not be grumblers and complainers, but that we would be people of joy. Lord, help us. Help us to accomplish this this goal. Lord, we know that this is what you would have for us. And I pray that the joy that we do have, Lord, that it would be contagious, that it would spill off into others and that they would in turn spill it back onto us. Lord, thank you for giving us this joy. Thank you for being our joy, for giving us this supernatural delight in you, in your goodness. May we never forget it. May we obey this command and reap the benefits of it for the rest of our lives. We pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.